Yeah. Ooh. Hello. Matt, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Oh, did, where do we begin? Matt, uh, your thoughts on the Robin show that we just went to. Oh, we went to a show together. But not but together. We didn't actually see each other. But We were at the same show. We were yeah. at the same show. We were seated somewhere near each other, but we never actually saw each other. We were, saw Robin at the forum. Whew. It was, it was, every, I mean, where do I begin? I'm wearing a Robin sweatshirt right now that I, I cherish. Did you buy the, I bought, the Konnichiwa yes, record sweat? You did. I did. Um, Matt McConkie. I, I just love her. I mean, I, there, there's, it's beyond words. Yeah. She's a survivor. Yeah. She is, uh, she's, she's, I just, I, I felt, I've always been in love with her and I fell even deeper. How old is Robin? I bet she's 40. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because she was so young. Maybe in the, late 30s. In the 90s. Yeah. Late 30s? You're putting her at even younger than 40? Maybe. Yeah. Because Show Me Love and Do You Know What It Takes, she was like 17. Right. So, yeah. So we're, yeah. Uh, 38 to 40. Um, but just unreal. She's someone where I... I want her to find love, but also I, I worry about what will happen to the music if and when she does. Yes, exactly. Because it is, and there's something funny about seeing it with your partner uh-huh. when, like, it, it's all, we're all connected to her music because of what it is. It's it's music for being, like, brokenhearted on a dance floor. You know, yeah. that is the recurring theme in, in all of it. Yeah. And we have both been there separately. We're clearly not there now in our lives, but yeah. it doesn't change how much we love her music and we've we've seen her together and loved her but i feel like when i was when i'm looking at the like younger gay guys in their 20s who are single and have maybe just got jilted by somebody recently who are just getting their lives out there they were having the full experience Mm -hmm. and i was you know as i've said leaning bopping buying a sweatshirt Uh uh-huh uh, I love that she did uh, missing you into call your girlfriend because I always thought that one little synth thing is is like a callback to call your girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. So to hear them back to back was like, aha, I knew it, Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I could not have been happier. Uh, this episode, uh, I was not here. Before. I know. I, I'm sorry in advance. Okay. That this is Dave Holmesless. No, this is. I'm excited to hear it. But uh, yeah, I, you were out of town and we uh, had a very short window where we could interview Mark Patton, who of course is the star of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, mm-hmm. Freddy's Revenge, the gayest horror movie of all time that we've already, we've talked about here many times. And he was in town uh, for Outfest because there's a documentary called Scream Queen that is about him and about the film and about his life after the film. We got into all that. The filmmakers are with him. Uh, he brought a whole entourage. It felt like a little gift to my... I, I wish I knew how old I was when I saw that movie. Well, far too young. Sure. Um, felt like a little gift to my little young self to get to meet him. I can't wait to hear it. He's sweet as can be. Let's get into it. And we're back with Mark Patton. Hey there, how you How's doing? it going? Fantastic. It's great to be back in LA. I'm so happy that you're here. I, I think she's coming in to tell you to push the mic in closer to get up on it. Pull Is up to good? the bumper, baby. Um, so we're recording this the night before 
your documentary premieres at Outfest. Yes. Scream Queen. Yes. I will be there. Fantastic. I will be a screaming queen. I think row. everybody's going to be there. All the screaming queens are going to be there. We've um, got some good screaming queens coming. So, um, Yeah, so I, I want to get into all of that, but I, I think before I want to just go back, and most of the listeners will be familiar with you, and we've talked about you and talked about Nightmare 2 so much, and uh, Louis Peitzman, who did a great piece about you in BuzzFeed, has been on the show. Oh, and, fantastic. Yeah, it's nice. Um, and uh, so most people are familiar, but for anyone who might not be, um, let's take them back to 1985. Fantastic. Let's and go back I guess there. even before 1985, <clears throat> um, you are auditioning for a little film called Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Yes, I am. After, actually, that I had tested for... The original Nightmare on Elm Street with Heather oh, I and I tested that. yeah together for me to be her her Glenn I think I can't remember it was a long time ago oh wow and then so yeah so I, then I sort of put it out of my mind I didn't really think about it it was just another audition at yeah. that time and then I right down here down the road at the what's that Dutch windmill looking building uh, it's know. on Sun, on Hollywood Boulevard oh yeah I yeah think that's where casting there now that's where. That's where it all came down. That's where it happened. Yeah, that was it. And um, so I got cast in that, like, pretty immediately. I mean, I was talked to, and I think three days later they offered me the film, which is very rare in this world. You know know that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was 1984, 85. And um, we started filming in July, and we were... Started. We were filming in July. I think we started in June, and we were in the theaters in October. Oh wow! Yeah, it was amazing, amazingly quick experience. Super quick. And how? And had a year gone by since part one had come out? Not even. I think. Not even was, a year. I think it was like probably six months or seven months when they started. They. Wow. I mean, it was really they were just jumping on. They wanted the money. Well, I think what had happened actually is that Bob Shea had given everything away to get the movie made. Yeah, and he needed money. Really badly because he wasn't getting any money from the original Elm Street, mm-hmm. so they just piled right in. And then Wes didn't want to do it, so Wes had nothing to do with part two, and then it made him a lot of money. Yeah. So then Wes came back. Yeah, <laughs> you know how that goes. And suddenly there was a franchise. <laughs> there so was before... a franchise, and then there was the house that Freddie built. Yeah, know, uh, New Line. That yeah. was it. Um. So j- let's just do a like a highlights reel of the film which i just rewatched this morning it's okay. such a great thing to like watch with your coffee at 9 a.m on a friday yes, but, um well, i should give you i'll bring you i'll send you over i, I wrote a book called jesse's lost journals oh it's my God. jesse's nancy nancy's diary and it's um the movie starts with uh where the film starts the journal starts and it's like Jesse's laying in bed. He's woken up. He's just screamed at the top of his lungs. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks, oh, thank God I got my hair cut at Supercuts because he's going to a new school and he doesn't want to be a nerd at the new school. So his mom's walked him through all the things that he needs to do yeah. so that he can be popular. Of course. Yeah. And so and he that's got a what, great haircut. He did get a great He had fabulous hair, that Jesse boy. He really <laughs> still does. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. It was big last night. That was some big hair I had last night on the red carpet. It was, oh, wow. It was huge. So... Um, the you know the film is is now often referred to as the gayest slasher film of all time and it's become this kind of like homoerotic cult classic but um i and i'm sure for any for anyone who hasn't seen it let's just refresh their memories just with some of the greatest hits the moments of the film the most sort of like iconic gay moments well i think the most iconic moments for me that i get feedback on is 
um, my my body because it's usually covered in oil of some sort and yeah. water is sprayed on it. And I, yeah. I spend a lot of the time in uh, not Calvin Klein's, which I was really pissed about. They wouldn't buy Calvin Klein's at that time. Wow. And me and my underwear. <laughs> and um, and then I think, you know, there's, of course, my gym coach who's a sadomasochist. Mm-hmm. Um, my The bully in my school who turns into my lover, Ron Grady. Mm. Um, me basically throwing up on my girlfriend when I try to have sex with her and running off to my best friend's house. Yeah. Um, killing people in the shower. You know? <laughs> like, you can do better, probably better than I. You know those well, things. Well, I, I do, but, you know, the one that jumped out at me this morning that I had never noticed before, is, which is so clear, is very early on, you're playing baseball at school, and Grady, who is the, like, yeah. hunky jock guy, is up to bat, right. and he does this little butt wiggle, right. and then... Because you are very clearly distracted by, by what he is doing. That's right. I get hit in the head by a ball. And there's just no, I don't know how anybody could interpret that any other way. Oh, yeah. No, it's like, it's so funny because Robert and I have Robert Rustler, who I love, mm-hmm. like really good friend of mine. And he uh, plays Grady. He plays Grady. About, yeah. So sorry. Yeah. He plays Grady. And he's like the dark jock that, you know, and he was like such a nice guy, like on from a personal level, like, Going into a film like that, it's very strange. Like yeah. I don't play baseball, right? yeah. And um, and for so that was a terrifying scene to open with. I'm going to go and play in front of all these jocks, and you know they're going to fuck the star. Basically, is like. Oh, please, um, yeah. um, and Robert went out to the professional baseball team that was throwing the game. That was, those were all professional players, oh, wow. and he said, "If that ball doesn't hit the bat, I will." kick your ass you know so he really was like my protector the whole time we were talking about because we're going out on tour and i and i had a book written about the two of us Uh and it's them as lovers right and it's with pictures and all kinds of just for fun yeah and robert's so on board with it he was like oh like we were a couple from the first moment we met (laughs) you know because he's the one in the film that will say he always knew what he was playing what was expected of him really from the very first minute yeah yeah, because he is like definitely the object of your lust, right. and there is this connection between them. And yeah, they love each other. They love each other. Yeah, because in the movie, in a traditional movie like that, he would be my the bully, mm-hmm. and we might get along to save each other's lives or whatnot. But we actually become friends. We have like that scene where they put the snake around my neck in the mm-hmm. thing, and I flip him off. You can see that's the moment where they look in each other's eyes, and it's like, oh, we're friends. I yeah. Mean, and I always think the the where uh, the scene in the cafeteria where he's saying, I can't go to the party. Why? Because I pushed my grandmother down the stairs, you know, with yeah. a mouthful. Um, that that's them having an argument. Like mm-hmm. by in my mind, by then they're a couple. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're an old and the girls are just there, yeah. you know, just but like they're having their little tiff between yeah. the two of them, and um, I guess their plans fell through. But it all worked out. They got to spend the night together, <laughs> yeah. even if it was the end of one. Yeah, of them. it didn't end great. But yeah. um, and and the other big sort of homoerotic relationship is between you and Freddie. Yes, and I th- one of the first things he says to you is like I. You and I have what does he say? We have work to do. We have work to do. You and I. We have work to do. You and I. You've got the body, and I got the brain. That's what it is. You've got the body. I've got the brain. And he's grabbing you by the face, and it is. It is a. 
I mean, just an incredibly homoerotic moment. Robert says in the documentary, uh, when they're interviewing him, he says, oh, I think it was homoerotica or something like that, you know, Robert. (laughs) Um, And he talks about the fact that he's actually rimming his mouth. And at one point, uh, Robert said to me during the filming, he goes, do you mind if I put the the blades in, in your mouth? Oh my God. And I said, oh, you know, whatever. You know, I can go wherever you want to go. It's no big deal to me. And my makeup artist, Danny, came running across the – and he was like, stop. He needs makeup. And they shut the cameras down. And he whispered in my ear, don't let him put the blade in your mouth because it will look like you're giving him a blowjob and you'll never live it down. Oof. And he was right. And so I said, well, I don't think I'll do that. And I didn't really, I hadn't clued in that point about where we were going to. It hadn't right. been quite come clear to me. It would vary shortly right. what kind of ground we were on. And, but it was all there, you know. And Robert says it's Beauty and the Beast is the trope that he's playing with, that oh, he wow. wants my body and he, because he wants my beauty uh-huh. and, um, and that he's having a love affair with me. But he talks about that at great length in the documentary. It's, oh, great. Uh, it's very Good. interesting because he really owns that stuff. I mean, he's very straightforward. Robert Rustler is very straightforward. It's seemingly that anybody that's really secure in their sexuality <laughs> are very like, this is what happened. Uh-huh. Marshall Bell's the same way. It's like, oh, no, come on. Marshall Bell plays the coach. The gym coach, had, yeah. I mean, that's, that is also not subtle. I mean, he, he no. we, you meet him in a – like in a leather bar in the middle of the night and he's in full right. chaps and everything. And then takes me back to school to rape me, you right. know, basically. So. Yeah, it does not get there because then he gets tied up to the showers, whipped to death. and Exactly. I say that's the one um, kill that I really enjoyed. I think he, sh- I think he should have died. You know, if he, yeah, yeah. If, I don't think I was the first boy that he took back to the showers. Oh, so, God. You know. well, what a creep that guy yeah. was. But. but he's fabulous. I mean, Marshall Bell is a, a, an amazing, amazing guy. Yeah. You know, what what is his wife's name? I'm so sorry. I can't remember. She's one of the most famous costume designers in the world. She oh, won wow. the Academy Award um, for what the little hotel. Um, Grand Budapest? Yes. Yeah, oh, that was wow. her third Academy Award. Oh, wow. So they live in this very rarefied world uh-huh. that's, you know, really exciting. She did, like, Chariots of Fire and things like that. She's an amazing, amazing woman. Yeah. Wow. Um, so – where were you before before the you know this um lore of the film as like kind of gay camp mm-hmm. took over when you were auditioning for it and you were a young actor in LA where were you in terms of your own sexual identity well you know you have to yes, it's really important to to contextualize it and put it in the time, right? So I had come from New York where I had come off a success with Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, mm-hmm. which is a, a Robert Altman movie, which is, you know, very famous cast. Cher, Sandy Dennis, Karen Black, mm-hmm. Kathy Bates, myself. We did it on Broadway. Then we shot the film and then went to Cannes. And it won like the Golden Bear, the Golden Lion. And I play a transgendered person, but they really didn't have that word right. at the time. Uh, so I was this gay boy who expresses gayness by becoming Karen Black. Um, So I was immersed in the world of New York theater. So, you know, homosexuality in in New York was a very different thing than it was in Los Angeles. So I was out in my personal life. I think I've always been out in my personal life. But there was no public persona that was allowed for gay people Mm -hmm. at that time. I mean, I was told what to wear, how to look, how to speak. They tried to, at one point, change my name. Um, and so when I came, I came with my friend from 
we were invited out to pilot season here in Los Angeles and a, a manager had come and got me. So we drove out and I was going to be immersed in this world of TV and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff. And so I came and that was, it was very clear that you were, the lines were very strictly drawn. It's like you had, you had to behave in a certain way. And then HIV had started to show up. So that intensified it. But I met the really profound lover of my life here when I moved to Los Angeles within the first couple of days. And he was a television star. So we would go to these, you know, beautiful, luxurious parties that were filled with gay men. I think Ellen DeGeneres has that party now for the lesbians. And, you know, every influential gay person in the world is there. But you're not supposed to remember that you saw each other there is basically what it comes down to. And then, um, and by the time, you know, and I was doing like Aaron Spelling shows and General Hospital and those kind of things. You're just building up your cred until you get to the point where you can take the lead. And and then along came Nightmare on Elm Street, but it just uh, butted right at the point with the AIDS crisis where nothing was acceptable anymore. You were expected to go back into the closet, go in really deep and start building your story. And, and you were going to have to live it. That was just, that's what was going on. And so I, through personal experience of my own life, what happened in Nightmare on Elm Street, what was happening with my lover at the time and my friends just rejected it. I mean, wholesale. I mean, I, I rejected this this whole life, everything mm. about it. And I think it was a way to stay alive, really, at that point. I mean, I'm glad I did it now. I recognize now what I gave up, but, you know, 2020. Yeah, you had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and at what point did you realize what was really going on with the subtext of, of the I film? Too? Yeah. yeah, well, because, it was the, because the film was being shot so quickly... You know, like mm-hmm. we didn't really have a full script when we started. And Robert England was not involved, you know. He, yeah, they were going to cast a stunt double they or did. something. Yeah. And I say, and I always say, I, w- I want to remind like Robert and humble him that if that dumb guy, because they got like a guy that was dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> so if he would have been just a little smarter and could have just walked with a little something there might not i mean like freddie might be like jason right there might be six different freddies but they didn't want to pay robert a little bit more money to come back for the second one uh, being cheap as they were so then jack shoulder said you can't do this movie without him That's so smart. then they had to go back and get him and then that really cost him oh, you yeah. know and so and then he if you notice in the elm streets the first one um stars heather and the second one stars me and the third one stars Robert, hmm. you know, because he moved that from with to, but mm-hmm. the script wasn't written. And then David Chaskin, who was the writer, he started writing his subtextual homosexual opus and nobody noticed because it was being shot out of context. Like say Jack Shoulder was shooting first and then Joel Soissant was shooting the second reel. And like he shot all of the, Joel shot all the shower stuff with Marshall. <coughs> and I think when it came off of Jack's um, shoot list, he just didn't pay any attention anymore because mm-hmm. he was so overwhelmed. Yeah. So I don't really even think he knew what that scene looked like until they started editing it. And nobody did. And so the, the more that David got away with, the more he wrote, you know. And, you know, our documentary is about this, but he's, you know, not the – 
you know, the smartest guy on the block probably. And what he thinks was very subtle is to our eye is like, that's you being subtle, dude. That's (laughs) not, that is not not a a fag joke in the middle of a movie is not a subtle thing. You know, so, um, so anyway, but we didn't know. And then I, when I did realize, I realized in the bar and we were shooting at the detour, I think is maybe up in Silver Lake. Uh huh. And, uh, I had done that scene in the rain where I run through, um, you know, through the street, which I wish they would have me naked. I just, I go look back and I'm like, why didn't they just have me take my clothes off? Because we had all of the, the street was shut down. I was shooting night for day and it was closed off and the police say I'm naked. Why were they afraid to just let me, you know, just go for it? Yeah. Right. Do you know, do you know a movie like just sliding around? Do you know a movie called Closet Monster? With no. Colin Jessup. Mm-mm. Okay, I'm going to be the press rep for for this movie called Closet Monster. Okay. It is sort of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, shot in, um, it's a horror movie, basically. Colum, co- uh, how do I? Connor. Connor Jessup uh-huh. is the star. The kid that was just on his 25th birthday came out as gay. Okay. And he's in ABC's uh, American Crime and all those kind of things. It's, it's what Nightmare on Elm Street could have been if it was... It was shot in 2015. And that movie won TIFF. It won the best. Oh, right, right. And it's a gay horror film. And Rent It Tonight. Oh, it's yeah. So yeah. it has one of the most erotic uh, seductions that I've ever seen. Oh, my, my God. I mean, I watch and I have to stop it again and stop it again. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, they're not really doing that. That's me. And he's Jesse. Yeah. That boy is Jesse. Yeah. And if I, people often ask me, well, would you like to direct it again or be in it again? It's exactly what I would do. Music. Ambiance, and it's a full-out homo coming-out story. Wow! Done through the eyes of somebody who's being visited by horror experiences. So go see that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I definitely will. And, and mean, of course, I lost my train of thought. Well, no. I mean, what's what's so fascinating about watching it now and remembering what I felt like watching it as a closeted gay kid was that I know I. I saw so much of myself in Jesse and I still do. Mm-hmm. And Thank you. there's a, you know, there's a, there's such a sensitivity to him and a vulnerability. And I think if, I guess the, the, uh, to the, the blindest person in the world, I guess they could sort of squint and just see it that way, that this is the story of a straight right. guy who's being possessed by Freddy Krueger. And he just happens to, you know, be confused about what's happening to his body. Right. And he ha- <laughs> keeps saying, like, this man wants to get inside of me a right. lot. But well, I love that, don't you? It's, it's like, so now that's David's subtext. Yeah, He's inside exactly. me and he wants to take me again. But um, that it dawned on me watching it today that it's also that as much as I love um, the Lisa character mm-hmm. and Kim Myers, who plays her so great, um, it is strange that the resolution of this is that Jesse is saved by the love of a woman. Oh, yeah. Well, you'll see then the documentary, like David, the writer, as the years went on and he denied this. I mean, we have quotes from him, which are so hideous that are like, well, you know, I didn't write this movie as a homoerotic movie. I wrote it as a homophobic movie. I thought, what would make a straight guy sick to his stomach? Hmm. And it was, But it was supposed to be subtext. And then, you know, the casting ruined that. And, yeah, that's how subtle he is. And also, you know, this is a, this would be a great movie to use at conversion therapy camps. You know, the, the love of a good woman will always save a gay man. 
But we have a lot of you. I'm gonna. You're gonna. I'm. I'm gonna get it all in the documentary. You're gonna. You're gonna. Uh, you yeah. are gonna be like. I can't wait to see you after because you're gonna, gonna be in seventh heaven. Up. Because it because it comes into play. Everything comes into play with this. Like it's perfect. It's like I feel like sometimes like the God or the universe or whatever set all my entire life up and put me in this movie and did this and this and this to place me in this moment to have this conversation, Mm -hmm. which is that that beautiful boy, right, that I was, do you know what I mean? And that was a beautiful boy. I mean, God gave me a good car to ride around. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Um, The only thing that I could see, people used to ask me, well, what what did you, when you were on the, at MGM on the big screen for the first time, what'd you think? Like your dreams came true. And I used to have like really good set answers. Like, yeah, you know, and I was a movie star and I wanted to be and all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't the truth. The truth of the matter is I looked at it and thought, can anybody tell I'm gay? Hmm. Have I betrayed myself? Hmm. And in that movie I had, you know, and my life has been a a journey of falling in love with that boy again, who was Hmm. me. Because all the beautiful things about myself that were the most intriguing and the most beguiling that you saw and you were attracted to and saw in yourself, I hated. And that's what all those people were hating, was the fact that I would reach for my thoughts over here, or my hands moved in a certain way, or I walked in a certain manner, or I was vulnerable, you know? Mm-hmm. Because that scene now, with when you see the scene now with Kim and I, it plays completely differently for me in my life. Because she really, I, if you put in her... In the in your mind that she knows he's gay, yeah, and she's saying it's going to be okay. I'll get you through it. It'll be fine. I had a girlfriend like that in high school. Right. It'll be fine. We'll get you to New York, and everything'll be cool. You know, You're right? There's a reading of it where it's it's, it's a, a friendship love story, right? And, and we were both highly intelligent people, and we approached it from the way the script was written. So that's why it plays in the way that it does, and that's I think in the end that's why it holds up. Yeah, you know, yeah, get those. But uh, yes, but it is hateful. I mean, there are a lot of queer theory people who are just like, please stop holding this movie up as an example of any iconic gay moment. It's hateful. It's homophobic. The ending of it is hateful. And But then we have a, a, a nice Dr. Andy in the film who walks us through that uh, that at that time, gay boys like you, they had to look between the lines. Yeah. And they had to take what they could get. They became scavengers. And so in their mind, the end just never happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the only thing that happened is Jesse and how they identified with him. Like men come up to me now and they're like, they want me to sign their videotape, right? Because it's all VCRs. Mm-hmm. And they're always broken in the same place because they've stopped them so many times. <laughs> you know, and... uh I'm not embarrassed at all. I love it when they say, oh, you were my first boyfriend or, you know, you were the first person that I saw the screen and I thought you might love me back. Hmm. And that's pretty profound. It's very cool. I, I, you know, I think what I felt was that I, you know, I was a a kid who always um, identified with female characters and was very drawn to female characters. And this was, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. And that this was one instance where it was like, Oh, that no, that's a version of being a boy that I'm right. interested in. Like that's this he he makes looking like a becoming a teenager look a little less scary. I mean, it's scary when he becomes oh. possessed by Freddy Krueger. Oh, sure, sure, than, sure. You know. Yeah, no, I think that I think it's true. I mean, I I really believe not to go too well. We'll go just as deep as you want to, but like, just boys are not we're not allowed that privilege in life. Yeah, to be afraid, and they're certainly not allowed that in the movies. I mean, 
yeah. under any circumstances. You cannot be afraid, you know, or weak, you know. So uh, walk us through sort of in the broad strokes what you went through after the film came out. Well, what I came through after the film went out is, um, well, I I want to teach a course to young actors mm-hmm. on like how to be an actor. Like you don't realize after you make your first lead in a movie that you're, the movie's not going to come out for a while. You didn't get paid very much money to be mm-hmm. in it. And you're probably broke. But you're supposed to be a movie star. Right. And everybody around you seems really successful. But you're like, I don't have any money. You know, like, how do I get my outfit to get on the red carpet is basically what it comes down to. So I had all that going on. And then all of my friends had started to get sick. And my lover was sick um, with HIV. And I was going to meetings. Like, my favorite one was at the Black Tower at CBS where I went and I was Talk, uh, they were talking to me about playing a gay character on television, right? One of the first gay characters. And there were all these men along that big black table in those rooms with the pens. You know, it's dark. And they're asking you questions and, um, you know, vetting you, I guess. There's mm-hmm. the press and the whatever. Um, and they're going, well, how would you feel about playing a gay person? You know, how would you, how would your girlfriend feel about Playing, you playing a gay person. Would you guys as a couple be able to hold on? To, now, everybody knows who my lover was at that time. He was famous. And all of those guys sitting around that table were gay. And I thought, there's 13 gay guys sitting around a table telling me how to be in the closet. And our entire community is dying right around us. I don't have time for this. I'm sorry. It's not what I got into show business for. I got into show business to be free. Yeah. You know, I had to fight to be who I was. And I literally, there was just a snap in my mind. And they say in the documentary, it's like through a combination of illnesses, friendships, the business, how homophobic the business was at that point. There's a great conversation going on right at this moment about um, who are the homophobes in show business, Mm -hmm. right? And I can tell you who they were. I knew who they were when I was a, I knew who to avoid when I was at that. But what the point is that they broke me, and I just didn't care anymore. I knew I could make a lot of money doing something else, and I could have a fabulous life, and I chose that. And was part of it that that the reaction had already started? You know that that oh sure it, the idea of the film as like gay camp. Oh had yeah, already no, started. Yeah, well, well, no, that wasn't really so much. It's right. like my agent said to me after the screening of the film. Well, we love you. And you can definitely carry a movie, but you have to be a, a character actor because you can't play straight. Mm. And um, now I had played straight many, many times before, but this was on a national, international level. And this is how I was going to be introduced to people. And it was like as a sissy boy. And there weren't really any room for sissy boys in this environment right here. And so, but going back to that conversation, which is a very important conversation on this comedy channel going really hmm. deep, is the most homophobic people in, in Hollywood were casting directors, agents, and I and um, people below the line that are homosexual men. And that they only opportunity, their power lie totally in the fact that they could say no. Like, so you would have a homosexual casting director go in, interview with him, and he would say things to me like, oh, hi, do you know Timothy Patrick Murphy? Now, Timothy Patrick Murphy was my lover. Mm. And I said, yeah, people say we look alike, you know, because we did look alike. But uh, 
Oh, well, you look so much like him. Well, I don't think this part's going to be right for you, but, you know. But they let me know that they knew. And they were using their gaydar to weed out. And if you go to film executives right now, Netflix, any place, and say, do you mind having a gay lead actor? No, absolutely not. We have no problem with it. The casting directors won't bring them to them. The agents and the managers say, you can't come out. If you come out, you'll have no career. And it's all because they're worried about their bottom line. And it's all, many, many of the people are homosexuals who fear coming out of the closet themselves, so they scare everybody else. They're older men who say to a 25-year-old boy, if you come out of the closet, you'll destroy your career. And that's why I admire uh, uh, this young boy so much who came out on his 25th birthday, because he had it all. Yeah. And I'm sure there were lots of people telling him not to do it. And he said, screw it. I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. And I love that. I want to be him. Mm. I want to marry him because I'm an old lech, I guess, now. But then I want to be him in my next life. So after you make the decision to leave the business, mm-hmm. where do you go? Um, well, there, it's the, the time I actually just left the, the metaphysical business. Mm. That's a – that's – I might have been here. I might My life was in – Los Angeles, New York, it was everywhere. Right. So the, I just left the, you know, the metaphysical business. And you as a person in the business know there's a reality here that's business-oriented that has nothing to do with Los Angeles. And either you're a part of that or you're not. And people can, they know it instantly. Mm-hmm. And I just removed myself from that. I removed myself from competition. I turned down everything. Eventually, I ended up in back in New York. Um, and then the full-on AIDS thing started, and that was just banging. And eventually, before I went to Palm Beach, Florida, to make money, uh, I went behind enemy lines and <laughs> lived in Palm Beach for a while. And then now I've lived in Mexico for many, many years, in uh, the country of Mexico. Wow. Yeah. And as the uh, other sequels started to roll out, because Nightmare 2 was a big box office oh, success. Huge. It surpassed <laughs> Yes, it did. Story. And also, it was a critical success. That's what people mm-hmm. forget. I mean, it was the New York Times gave it an amazing review. Janet Maslin gave me a great review. Hmm. And when, so when I hear people say, oh, you know, it was a total bust. It wasn't. It made more money than any of them. And except for three, three went on to be, I think, the one that makes the most money. Right. Still, the big moneymaker is two. And, uh, and great reviews from the New York Times, London Times, everything. And people go, oh, is that? No, it wasn't. It was just branded at one point. Right. And I think that had to do with, you know, they broke the, the rules that really didn't exist at that time. Those rules were really not set up for Elm Street until part three. Right. So we couldn't really break rules that didn't exist, but people just didn't like it. But what it came down to, I think, more than anything else, is they, it was a gender thing. They just didn't want to see a boy play a girl's part, mm. you know? And as three came out and four and on and on, and it became this phenomenon, were you on the sidelines? Were you? Did, did you watch? Did you participate? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, I just, it didn't, it's, Hollywood ceased to exist for me at that point. I wasn't interested in it. Um, the kind of films that I w- was interested in were very different. Um, I... I just had a completely different life. And I didn't really even think about being famous. I mean, I knew I was in Elm Street, and I knew Freddy Krueger's would show up every place. And if I revealed myself to somebody, they would get really excited. But I didn't know it was a worldwide phenomenon. I didn't know it was the number one horror franchise in the world. 
I didn't know these websites existed and whatnot. And how I came back in is I was living in Mexico um, and my sister-in-law was my interlocutor to the world, to paying bills, taking care of. And I, they were under instructions. If somebody offers me film work, just tell them to go away. And because it would come for decades. Hmm. Uh, like somebody would grow up and they liked this movie and they were like, let's find him. you know. And the answer was just no. So Never Sleep Again tried to find me for a long time. Which is a documentary from 2010. About yes, Tommy the, Hudson. Yeah. And, um, Houston, is that its name? Houston or Hudson? Houston. Tommy, I, I know where Houston Tommy is. Tommy Hudson. Hudson. Tommy Hudson. Well, he's Houston, Hudson, <laughs> Houston. And, uh, and Daniel Farahan, right? Okay. So I love those guys. They made it their business to find me and like went through private detectives and all wow. that kind of thing to find me. Because I was off the grid. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have television, you know, nothing. I lived in Mexico. You, I was not reachable. And what, were you, what was your day-to-day life like in Mexico? Well, I'm a painter and I owned a store. And I, when I went to Mexico, I realized I had been a, a designer interior designer, like a very high-level interior designer mm-hmm. for quite some time. And I went to Mexico, and I was like, I want to live here. And I thought, well, I need a job. And everybody was selling these paintings for thousands of dollars to tourists, right, for their condos. And I was like, well, I can make that painting in 15 minutes, so I'll make them and I'll sell them for 100 bucks. And if I sell a couple of them a week, then I can afford to live here, and I don't ever have to go back, and that's what I did. I opened a store. Eventually, I began making paintings on bags which became very collectible and i sold thousands of them each is unique and then i had women bead them and but they're like they're contemporary mexican culture they're not like indigenous people stuff they're trippy vogue magazine and um and women tourists would buy them and i'd sell them for like 75 dollars instead of 300 or 400 and they were in bergdorf at one point and i just made a lot of money doing that and i just sat down there and enjoyed myself i went to the beach went swimming every afternoon i got married to a mexican man named mm-hmm. hector and we just had our life and our dogs and nobody knew i was an actor i didn't have to deal with any of that it was just like because even when i was an interior designer there would always come at some point where the client would come to me and he would be sheepish you know and he'd say listen my grand child told me this and it may or may not be true but are you this person and i'd say yes and they'd say can you sign this for them and there would be a hole and i'd sign the autograph and the dynamic of her relationship changed completely mm-hmm. he was no longer the boss i was the boss i was doing them a favor because i was a movie star and why would anybody stop being a movie star right so i must be highly intelligent very smart and above them all it's informed everything i've ever done nightmare on Elm street so they track you down they to participate in this documentary. Yes. And that becomes your entree into the Elm Street world world as a whole. And so you start a- attending like the conventions and kind of re-embracing. Yes. When they reached me two days later, I was in L.A. filming oh. the documentary. I mean, I had no time to think about it. And I was also like 10 pounds overweight for the camera. So I looked like a big fat, fat guy on the thing, which is a nightmare for me. But, um, you know, for people who haven't seen you in like 30 years and all of a sudden you're like, I'm a <laughs> heifer. No. And it's like my total fear, you know. So, um, and they had agents waiting for me when they got there. And would you like to go on a tour? This is what it came down to. Would you like to go on a world tour signing autographs? They call you the Greta Garbo of horror. Wow. Yeah, which we 
branded that immediately and took of it course. to heart. And so I did. And the first place I went to sign autographs was in Amsterdam. And then I began to educate myself and I realized, oh my God, I'm like the number one Google search on my Google search. I own Mark Patton. Yeah. You know, and there are a lot of Mark, Mark Pattons in the world, but I own the You're name. You're the one. Right? So, and I began to, I'm an entrepreneur. So I thought, oh my God, I have this fame and it's not a, enough fame to be famous, but it's enough fame that I can do something with it. So what can I do? And that's when I began my journey right then. I thought I can squeeze something out of this, these pictures and this glove, which is very iconic. I'm iconic, but I'm really hated. Because when you used to type in Mark Patton, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, it was a Mark Patton is a faggot. You know, he screams like a girl. He's a woman. What a loser. I hate this movie. Don't watch it. Now, when you type in Mark Patton, Nightmare on Elm Street, he's a horror icon, gay advocate. He brought homosexuality into the into the convention world, and we love him. You know, you have to dig deep to get to the nasty stuff about me now, mm -hmm. you know? And I keep burying it. So, because I want, I want boys to look at it and be excited, not um, offended yeah. for me. And then going on this tour and attending conventions and all that, did you then start interfacing with all of the other actors from the movies that you weren't part of and... Yes. Oh, yeah. Every it's a small world. Yeah. Yeah. We all travel together, and like I'm like Sid Haig became a mentor. You know, like if if you know Rob Zombie, those type of people. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling with Robert. And I was ta traveling with Heather and Amanda, and um, and I was getting a feel for what it was. Do you know what I mean? That what because uh, people would literally come in and and like kind of spit at me when I first started doing. It. It's like, what are you doing here? You know, like you don't belong here. And I would hear all the time people would come up to my table and say, oh, I really hate your movie. Or they would come up and get Kim's autograph, but not mine. You know, well, I'm going to get her autograph, but not yours. And be like, okay. And then that became the conversation, you know. And what was it like reconnecting with, like, Kim and Robert and these people? I imagine you hadn't spoken to most of them in um, decades. Yeah, no. I hadn't spoken to anybody. I mean, um, well, Kim and I are like separated at birth. I mean, she's like my sister and um, I love her. I've been at her house for the last couple of days. And, um, you know, she has three children. One's in a band. One's, you know, they're just hot kids. And she still looks fabulous. Mm -hmm. And Robert Ressler and I had a connection through Robert Downey Jr. and Sarah Parker. So I sort of knew Kim because we all lived in the same building. And you sort of keep touch of that. I actually at one point turned off television for a very specific reason because everybody I knew had become world famous. Hmm. So if you were watching the Academy Awards with a bunch of people that didn't know you were an actor and I'd say, oh, I know him or I know him or you'd start to tell a story and then I stopped telling the stories because I sounded like a blowhard and then I began to sound crazy. It's like, oh yeah, Sarah used to live in my house with Tim and I and she, you know, banged up her American Express card and had to go on this television show to get some money. And then Robert Downey Jr. was my dog walker and he let the dog pee all over the house and we had to recarpet it. And now he's a billionaire, so she can me that money back. Yeah. Um, you know, but that begins to sound crazy if people don't have you placed in a place, you know. And when when you decided to re-enter, did you have to... Um, I, I would imagine there must be this huge element of um, 
letting go of grievances and uh, sort of forgiving yourself, forgiving the industry that, you know, Power. yeah, all of it. Well, you there was, but it was all a process and th- which really kind of brings us around to the documentary because the documentary I conceived, I wanted to do a documentary a long time. I mean, right at the beginning, mm-hmm. like Bill and I, my friend who's sitting here, we would talk in our, our room you know, because he traveled with me after a certain point. And I would tell him stories, you know, share stories or movie star stories or horror stories. or what. And we'd chat and he'd say, oh, these are so fascinating. And they were. And I thought, well, maybe I should write a book, you know. And then I got really angry. I got tremendously angry when I began to understand how my film had been treated, how my performance had been treated. Because I sort of took it like, it's a horrible movie, it's your fault. And that was a... It was not true, but it was a good thing for me to pick up to get angry with, to move me to the place that I was going to go. And I wanted to make a movie called There Is No Jesse. And that was about why there are, where, you know, you'd see those boys who'd do one or two movies and then they were gone. Mm. And you thought, oh, he's a star, but then he's gone. And especially in the 80s, and I wanted to ex- explore that. Like, where did those boys go to? Because they went someplace, they're chefs, they're interior designers, they're whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or they're dead or whatever. And then, so I started and it was just a mess. I mean, it was just going to be a mess. It wasn't going to go anyplace, but it was a dream, you know? And then I connected with my friend Roman through the sound and uh, Roman Chimanti, who's sitting right here. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Well, you know what? Let's do, let's take a quick break okay. and we'll come right back and talk right. about the documentary. After L.A., do you, like, tour some more? Do you go back? Oh, we're on the road for the rest of our lives. Yeah, <laughs> like, basically. I mean, it's getting to the point where we're so booked up. I think it was really after Frameline. I mean, we, we've been doing sneak previews. Yeah. We've done six of them. or mm-hmm. Six of them, Toronto, um, Cleveland. Cleveland, Portland, big festivals, are, and uh, Frameline, San Francisco. We played the Castro which was a trip. I mean, just, but you'll know when you see the documentary. I don't think that, I mean, we probably won't talk about this too much, but the documentary is not what you're expecting. I'm so excited. It's, it's a very, and even though it's ours, it's a very profound piece of uh, history and the people that leave, you know, like the Fred heads will come in and they're like, Oh my God, I wasn't expecting this, but thank you for doing this. Yeah. And the people who know nothing about Elm street say, I knew nothing about Elm street, but thank you for doing mm. this. And especially elders and survivors of HIV are like, please, thank you for telling the story. It's so you prepare to be moved. You will be moved. I guarantee you wow. in the thing. And you'll learn a lot about Elm street. And we, we give you some candy to get you in the door. Sure. And then we take a U-turn and we take you down a road that you're really not expecting to go down. And then we, we deliver you out of it. Oh, you know, you want, we want to slit your wrist when you leave. Well, that's good because we can let people know where else you're going to be. Okay, sure. the well, we, so, we can't say for, to for some. some I, think of them are I would like to talk about, if we could, that we're going to Alabama. Great. Are we rolling, Ryan? We can keep going. Okay. We can use all of this. It's okay. Yeah, because we have, they can't go on. We, we have a preview coming. I mean, the, our official opening is in, in quite a while, and they've allowed us. They've been generous to let us do this. Do all these. Sneakers. Yeah, but uh, but we can't say where it's at, but it's Got it's it. a big deal. Mm. And um, But we're going to, exciting for me, like Tyler, Roman, and I are going to Alabama. We're going to the sidewalk 
Film Festival. We've in been in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And at this point in time to go to Alabama with this type of movie for me is a trip. Yeah. But we're literally going everywhere in the United States. I break our European debut, I guess, is in um, Dublin. And I'll be going there in October. October. Yeah, but we'll eventually go everywhere in the world. We've been invited to if there's a homo there, we've been invited. I mean, that's like, and they've been waiting okay. for us. Like, waiting. Waiting. They're, yeah, they're the ready. people are really on our side with this. I mean, it's like yeah. it's had a life, a couple of years life of Scream Queen, My Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street. It's in the zeitgeist, and people are waiting for it. And it's really, it's just the right movie for the right time. Yeah, and people are going to enjoy it. Let's hear from these other scream queens. Let, that have yes, joined us. So why don't we just go around and you t- say your name and then what your 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 part is in the film? So we sure. All know uh, my name is Tyler Jensen. I'm the co-director, shooter, editor of this film. Tyler, hello. I'm Roman Kimienti. I'm the co-director, sound engineer, producer, conjurer of this movie. And I'm Bill Nugent. I'm uh, interviewed in the documentary as subject matter. Oh. He's, he's subject. <laughs> well, how, what, how are you subject matter? Tell, what's the story there? Well, Bill and I met originally. I When I first doing, started doing the conventions, when I first started doing the conventions, I got really pissed off that there were no Jesse dolls. There are all these Freddy dolls, but there's no Jesse anything. Mm-hmm. And I thought, screw that. I'll make my own Jesse doll. So I, I had a contest. And... Um, I said, whoever makes the best Jesse doll and brings it to Indianapolis, uh, they're going to win a trip to any convention that they want to go to with me, and they can sit at my table with me. And you can be my BFF. So, And a lot of creative gay guys showed up with their things. And there were some really nice ones, but none touched what Bill made. He had recreated Grady's bedroom and, like, the transformation. And the wallpaper was exact and the posters and the little red chicken was hanging from the thing. So, of course, he won. And then it turned out that we were, um, like, just meant to go on this journey together. Hmm. Uh, His story becomes a very important part of the documentary. Oh, intriguing. Yes. And so and uh, so I let him take it. But we, Bill began to travel with me. And he began to protect me on the road because I kind of need somebody too. And uh, he just began to fill that role and he began to take care of me in ways because I get beat up a lot. Mm-hmm. I give out a lot of energy when I go onto the road to my fans because they're young. I get a lot of suicide and a lot of bullying and a lot of of kids who are just really damaged. And by the end of the day, I just need to go in the room and be left alone. Mm-hmm. And he makes sure that I get to go in that room and I'm left alone and we talk. And, you know, he was a Marine or an Army man. Air and Force. Air Force, there you Air go. Force. So he can, like, read a map from across the world and he just makes sure I get where I'm going. And then he became involved in the documentary and they started filming him. And Bill helped coordinate so many of our endeavors. Right. You know, you... you Gave money you when it was needed. make sure that... Because there's a lot of dynamic personality happening here you know <laughs> and you just made sure we were all in the right car at the right time so that was awesome thank you so That's much awesome. Bill. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome <laughs> i mean yeah. even in the editing process like we put this film together and then like we knew we were missing something we checked back with bill's interview and it totally filled the gap and like had this profound second life oh and and how did it come to be because i know it's been in the works for a while because i've been you know, waiting for it. <laughs> right. Um, I met Roman randomly on another freelance gig. I was editing. He was doing sound design for it. I heard him talk to the producer of that job about starting this project. 
And I just heard like the two sentences, like I'm doing a documentary about Nightmare 2, you know, the gay one. And like without interjecting myself into the conversation, I lifted up my T-shirt and showed him my Freddy tattoo. Oh, my God. You can't see this in the radio land, but um, it's the telephone from part one with the burnt face and tongue sticking out at the bottom to say, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. (laughs) Um, So without just like communicating through like direct eye contact while holding up my t-shirt. I was like, I'm your guy. I'm going to be a part of this. I will edit your film. Just take me to Florida with you when you go (laughs) so I can meet Mark Patton, so I can meet Freddy Krueger, so I can meet Elvira. I'm very excited. I'd never been to a horror convention before, but... Yeah, neither had I. And and how did it start for you? I, I... Music. Yeah, I just reached out to Mark. Well, you had Jesse's Lost Journals. Right online right i found it by accident i one night i just in mania was like what happened to mark Patton?" i love that movie and it just dawned on me i think with a lot of people because you slipped away so stealth like that people legitimately forgot because usually there's you know some something left behind oh yeah there's all the claw marks of letting go it's like if you're hmm. booted out of the business there's like all that desperation of like keep me famous for one more minute yeah. right, but with right. me it was just a clean cut yeah. it was I'm, like I'm not doing any of this stuff anymore so there's a line there's me and then there's no me but I did I wrote that book and then it was picked up by Static Mass and they published it and it won some award in England for mm-hmm. the best fan fiction or it was, a, it was the continuing story of, of Jesse, Jesse and it was really so I you know that was the first thing I found online because I, I shocked myself in realizing wait a second what happened I why have I never looked that up and it just came to me in the middle of the night it's divine intervention I'm telling you it, and, and I read those things because I said I'm going to do my research first so I read it and I'm like that's really clever I love the story and then I noticed that you had I don't remember exactly, but it, I read that you were wanting to tell your tale in some capacity. Right. And, and so I just I th- sat on it for a minute and I thought about this. I'm like, I think there's something here I really wanted. So I just wrote to him. And I responded. And, and then there was Sam at that time was a guy who did our credits. Didn't Sam do yeah. the yeah. title yeah. sequence? Uh, I was working with him, but that, it just wasn't working out. And it was going the wrong direction. And Roman actually was said, oh, I'll do the music for you. It was like, uh, the, oh, so the documentary was already in the works but it was a, it was a different in, documentary. but it was a different, and then yeah. it shifted to this. Our documentary is like very holistic because what you see happening in, in the documentary is happening in real time. We're all having a consciousness breakthrough. I mean, I'm having the catharsis as we go because I thought it would go a certain way to be about other people, you know, like Steve Anton or other boys who had disappeared, Mitchell Anderson, a big group, or then it'd be about Freddie or what. But it became it. You don't really decide ultimately. I think that if you're saying that the movie is <laughs> going to be about your life, mm. and it really needed to be about my life. Because it's like I kind of in this documentary I play, sort of play the everyman. You can put yourself on me, project yourself onto me, really. And it's horrible. You know, I mean, what happened to me was really horrible. And it's just time, nobody's fault. It's just 1985 was not a great year to be a homosexual actor. So, and then Roman sort of came in and he was sound at first, music. He was like, oh, I really do. And I like watched his video and I was like, oh, he's really professional. I love him. And then he knew. And then we had a crew and everything. But Tyler knew when we were shooting that this what was going on was not appropriate. 
And he just decided, <laughs> I'm going to direct this thing. I know what I'm doing. And he just stepped into the thing. And then they're co-directors. He's a fabulous, uh, Roman is a fabulous producer. And we all, <laughs> he hates it, but most of us were really good at it. <laughs> we are very thankful for it. Yes, but we yeah. each, I will tell you this, and people ask us all the time, who, whose idea is this? Where did it come from? All that kind of thing. The people sitting at this table created it. Right. They, all of these, the four of us really, become one person, and it's all of ours. And it would do nobody any good to try to dig out who, well, why. Obviously, people come to me because it's my life. So the camera will turn to me often. But it would have never been done without him. It would have never been done without him and also with him, you know. So I really believe the universe put us together because I think we're telling a really important story. So we have to be really humble about it and not be all Hollywood. What's that? That's my idea. <laughs> right, right. We're not that kind of people, you know. And we know we'll receive the credit that we deserve. When you go into the theater, you'll you'll I'm be so you'll excited. love it. Yeah. And did what was the what what surprised you guys the most in the making of it in terms of what you know you set out to do versus what it actually became? Well, for myself, you 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 focus on Mark, and we fo- we follow Mark, and you know, like he said, things are happening in real time, so we have an idea of possibly what could happen. Doesn't always go that way, but the most surprising thing was seeing. The mirror, when you're when you're listening to someone else's story, and maybe his story is taking place in Hollywood, but it's reminding me of my situation as a young kid in San Jose, California, or his situation in Minnesota. You know, like it, it, it really like opens up your the doors in your own life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole point of telling your story is to relate to other people in some capacity. So we're telling his story and I'm realizing, oh, wow, there's a suitcase I didn't unpack, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about <clears throat> unpacking old traumas and things. I think the most uh, eye-opening moment was that first trip to Florida where we filmed the convention of the whole cast reunion. And I kind of knew, I thought I knew what the story was, but it wasn't until after that whole weekend we sat down with Mark in a hotel room and he told us his entire life story. And suddenly I'm getting everything in perspective. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is much bigger than I thought it was. And from that, we started doing, we got ready to do the Kickstarter thing. And that blew everything open. Suddenly, like, everyone knew what we were doing. They were super excited. But on top of that, it brought new people into the project with, like, a different, like, you have to talk about this, you have to talk about this. And that was exciting, but also, like kind of ruined our lives for a moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, well, because now we had an audience with a time frame expectation. Right, right. Um, it's, and we it's, still had more to do. Yeah, it's one thing to like not make the money and like still go on in darkness and just hope that you get it made. But then to see, like, we made all our money and now everyone was like, I want this movie now because it sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to say that we were like the Bernie Sanders of <laughs> Kickstarter. So like we got our money 10 bucks at a time mm-hmm. and with from very loyal people. And we never had to, but we were hoping that we could go back to them if we needed to because we didn't get $10,000 grants. And much of this is self-funded. We paid for a lot of it. Everybody at this table has paid money for this. We've worked years. But it was told to us that when we started the film, I remember Jack saying, well, it'll be three 
you'll have this out in about three years. And I was like, you're out of your mind. It's like, we'll have it out and we'll shoot for six weeks. We'll spend $10,000 and we'll be on the road to the Academy Award. By, right, <laughs> you know, right. And now it's been five years, mm. you know, and it's quit. For yeah. what we've done, five years is considered very, very fast. So, because it's not like, this is not a sit and face the camera type of documentary. Mm. It's not like talking heads telling yeah. you how they felt about Freddy Krueger. It's definitely- I think the most rewarding part, like we spent four years... Re-editing, editing, I think we had like 75 different drafts, and it was finally last September, Mark came to my apartment in Brooklyn with Roman and another friend, and we sat down and watched it, and he like gave me the best validation of my life that like we had done a good job, Hmm. because he just kind of sat there and sobbed, and I'm like, okay, this is working, we're almost done. Wow. I'm excited to sob tomorrow night when oh, I see this. Oh, you can this. cry with us. We'll comfort wait. you. We're, we're all there's, there'll, be, there'll be comfort boys there for all of <laughs> yeah. you to have a little breakdowns. Yeah. Um, do you have... You mentioned that um, the ending of Nightmare 2, which, you know, sort of implies that Freddy is back and, and the school bus that they're all on runs off the road. Um that that's not necessarily that's not the ending in your mind. Oh no, for Jesse. Not. What do you think happens to Jesse after that? Um, well, I think that he went into therapy mm-hmm. for a big time. Well, actually, if you read Jesse's Lost Journals, which I'll get you a copy, hey, you'll hey, find hey, out hey, what hey. happens to Jesse. Jesse Shameless actually, plug. yeah, actually, he goes <laughs> to New York and becomes a famous art, uh, um, famous painter, and but Freddie goes with him, oh. and. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, the uh, they meet Andy Warhol and it's it's a very like downtown scene in in New York and the serial killer comes with him and then uh, Jesse has to figure out how to get rid of him mm. and then uh, in the without nobody's going to read it anyway but the at the end my ending for Nightmare on Elm Street two which I believe the way the movie should have ended was that when when Jesse pulls all the gunk off of his face uh, that he should have killed Lisa. And yeah, that he just, and she's dead. And that's what I do in the book. I kill her. And uh, I also believe that you. Uh, <laughs> that's dark. Unexpected. Well, 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 but like, yeah, because you killed the woman. Instead of the woman saving me, I cut her free. Uh, and the scene in the, the pool scene is like, I, I told them when we were shooting it, it's like, put me in this pool covered in blood. And then it's a psychosis. Like mm-hmm. Jesse's the one that's killing everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that would, ruin the dream world things so it wouldn't the people wouldn't say certainly that. would explain a lot of things uh, yeah if yeah. he would have been there and he was the killer it was like oh freddie's not in the real world it's jesse that's killing all these people out of so i went with that premise and he was in a mental institution and he woke up one day and realized there was no lock on the door so he walked out <laughs> and lived in central park and started painting and andy warhol discovered him and then he started killing people and then i have him that freddie is using jesse as pornography and I realized that just when, like, Jesse finally gets to have sex, um, that he realizes that, that Freddie gets off watching him. And, yeah, so you'll like the book. It's really There's fun. There's a whole <laughs> oh, it's other wild. layer of psychosexual yeah. stuff. Exactly, which, would make, Lean fa- into which it. would make a fabulous movie, which takes us all the way back to Closet Monster, which you should watch. Because if you liked what I just told you, you'll love Closet Monster. I can't wait to watch Closet Monster. I can't wait to watch Scream Queen. I want to make, I actually would like to make Jesse's Lust Journals, to be honest with you. I, I, I take these boys. Picture it now. It. Ten episode yes. series. That's, oh, yes. And, and people ask me if, if Nightmare on Elm Street 2 should be rebooted. And I think, yeah, it should be. Be, but like American Crime, 
it'd be nine story arc on Netflix. Mm. You know, would be fine. Um, how can people follow the documentary and find out if it's coming to a city near them? Um, so screamqueendocumentary.com. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're on, on the Facebook, road, Instagram, Facebook, Instagram, when yeah. we're on the road, you don't get that. It's not updated as much. As soon as we get back, it's a flood of photos, information, where we're going to be. You can sign up for the festivals, what's coming up. We can only announce what they've greenlit, but they can't, they're coming. Um, yeah. And the easiest way is just Google Mark Patton because <laughs> I own that Mark Patton now. You all, I right. told you that, go. and you say hit that and just follow me anywhere because I'm I talk crazy. I update it every day. I love my people on Instagram and Facebook, and they love me. And I like I really honor them. So come and talk to us, and we'll let you know where everything's at. Great. I'll invite you to my house for dinner. <laughs> also, he's a really good cook, by the way. Yeah. We have um, one person in the group that we didn't mention is our executive producer, Matthew Chonaki, uh-huh. who is actually responsible for really helping us get that awesome poster made. Mm. Matt Ryan Tobin poster, the illustration, and we have a vinyl soundtrack that's coming out. Oh, cool. Another person who joined the group by oh, serendipity. Wait, is that a- are you dropping news right now? Ooh. A little bit, yeah. It's a hot Great. pink vinyl. <clears throat> yeah, it's cute. But our our composer, Alexander Taylor, just reached out. Another one that just came out of the woodwork and was like, I want to be a part of this. And I heard it and I said, this is the exact sound I want. Fantastic. Fits the scenes beautifully. And, I mean, we have, like, enough for two records. but it's And Cecil. Out. And Cecil Baldwin, the narrator, also, we crossed paths. You met, you were on a panel with him. He's uh, the voice of something called Welcome to Night Vale. Oh, sure. So He's our narrator. I mean, great. just the voice alone and the, the name on the screen have people writing to us all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's a really good, great group of characters, but the soundtrack, the poster, like, things like that will also be on a website soon. Yeah. So. And... Mark, for you, I gather this has also been on. You've been dipping your toe back into acting. Yes. Is there anything else you can tell us? Well, I actually, you know, I did two little movies that were like slammed against the wall just to see if I could work with what I have. Because, you know, like I was used to looking a certain way and being a person. Well, I'm not that person anymore. So did this film, did the face fit on screen? Did I know how to work it? Did I know how to play with it? And I did. I did those, and I was like, okay, well, you have to get used to being you, you know, because you're not him anymore. And it's, you know, for those of you who have, it's hard. Yeah. You know, I mean, I sit throughout the day signing autographs on paper, pictures of me when I'm 25 years old, and then I go to the hotel room and I'm not 25, right. you know. So, and, but yes, now I'm starting, I'm shooting a movie in Portland, um, beginning in, um, shortly. Mm-hmm. And we're fitting around our commitments. And these really super-duper kids in Portland out of the uh, Calgary Film School have put together something for me, which I'm very proud of. And they're going to announce it any day now. And there's a kickstart. So come to Mark Patton, and they're kickstarting that. And they're in their 20s, and they're really excited. Beautiful filmmakers. So I'm doing that. And that's going to be my calling card and let people know that I'm available for work if they want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not going to seek it. I'm going to let it come to me. Right. And if it comes, great. If it doesn't, I'm very happy with my life on a farm in Mexico. So, you know. Sounds like a great life. I mean, um, but we want to see more of you. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for well, doing Well, we want to see more of you, too. We so. have to let you get out, but I will see you all tomorrow night. Oh, it's um, going to be fun. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. so great. Thank you so much oh, for doing Oh, well, thank this. you. It's, it's a pleasure. Love it.